This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Where does an idea come from? From out of the blue? From nowhere? Nope. An idea is born from our knowledge of the world, from our experiences, our relationships, our labors, and our loves. It comes from the things we read, watch, listen, and dance to. An idea is sparked when we see a problem or an opportunity, when we see something that breaks our heart, when we see someone who needs a helping hand, when we see something that needs to be changed. We're reimagining learning and doing things very differently. And so I, I kept telling my, my group of mentees and advisees, there's not a thing that I ask you to do that I myself won't do. And I said, you can hold me to that at any point in time. Because we do ask the students to do a number of vulnerable, you know, activities that require a lot of vulnerability and a lot of sharing and, and you know, kind of getting into the uncomfort zone. And, you know, I'm, I'm right there with them. And I learn from them by listening to them and responding and hearing them. And so... To me, like, I can't just hold one student up because I just don't think that would be fair. I think that all of them I look back on and, and go, gosh, how lucky I was to be around them. My name is Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be podcast. Before we start the show, if you are an educator, I invite you to join the What School Could Be global online community. Install the What School Could Be app on your smartphone or go to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. My guest today is Chad Carlson, the Director of Research and Design at the One Stone Lab School in Boise, Idaho. Chad has been in the field of education for almost 20 years, working with both middle and high school students in the humanities, language arts, and Spanish. He has returned to Boise after several years at an international baccalaureate school in Bogota, Colombia, and at an independent school in Sun Valley, Idaho. Chad received his bachelor's in the humanities from the University of Oregon, his master's in Latin American studies from the University of California in San Diego, and recently earned his second master's in educational leadership at Boise State University. I'm going to quote an article posted at gettingsmart.com in which Dr. Lindsay Portnoy writes, quote, if you ask any high school student to name their favorite part of the day, you may hear the sound of the final bell. Not so at One Stone, a school in Boise which is flipping the script on high school as we know it. Talking with Chad Carlson, the Director of Research and Design at One Stone, it is clear that these folks know the recipe for successful learning. Chad notes, here, learning has become relevant to students. As agents of their own story, students focus on what is important to them while making meaning out of their learning each day. One of Chad's students once said to him, to this day, I consider you to be one of the most influential and gifted teachers that I've encountered in my life. And it was a true privilege to be one of your students in high school. I know that I wouldn't be where I am today without all the humor, wisdom, and guidance that you shared with me over the years. And I've learned so much from you. Thank you for always encouraging me to follow my passions and for pushing me to be a better scholar and person. I'm grateful for your perpetual patience, kindness, and compassion, and I'm so glad that our paths crossed. And now, here's my conversation with Chad Carlson at the One Stone Lab School. 
Chad, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Good morning, Josh. Thanks for having me on. So, Chad, you noted to me that you were born and raised in the Bay Area, but grew up in the Wood River Valley of Idaho. And along the way, a little later, connected with Mark Twain's novel, Huckleberry Finn. So I was born and raised in rural Hawaii and also connected with Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. And I think my connection came from Huck's desire not to be civilized, not to conform. And so, you know, Chad, school totally sucked for me. And I spent most of my non-school hours roving around the rural community I lived in, which was my real classroom. So what was your connection to Huck and how did he and Twain's novel help you come to know the essence of your youth? Gosh, great question. So the way I connect with Huck and Huck Finn and, and just kind of the adventures that he goes on is really that idea of being open and saying yes to possibility and understanding that every moment is a moment to redefine, to pivot, to go in different directions. And so, I mean, you really, you, you watch the story of Huck Finn and you have no idea where it's going because it is constantly in the moment making itself. That's how I see my life. And I really want to empower students and, and younger learners to see the, the possibility for adventure in their life and the, the possibility for learning from, from everyone and, and anything that happens to them and, and anyone they come across. So that's kind of my connection uh, with, with that story. Mm -hmm. And in what ways did Huck and his desire not to conform play out in your life? I know that you must have had some moments that were sort of, uh, you know, not reasonable if we, if we want to call it that, right, in terms of society's norms. Well, yeah, great question. I mean, it, that idea of conformity, I mean, that's really what, as a youth, as a, as a young person in, in this society, I would think in any, but, you know, you're, you're continually asked to, to conform and to do things to certain standards. Growing up in, in public education, I just did not connect with a lot of the things that I was being asked to do. Mm -hmm. And that was really challenging for me because I didn't understand the purpose or relevance of what I was doing in, you know, speaking mainly to my public school experience as a, as a younger kid, like elementary and, and middle school. Really didn't see its importance and saw that it was kind of mainly a uh, keeping you preoccupied as opposed to really getting out and learning. And, you know, I'm, I'm a key experiential learner. I learn by doing, I learn by, you know, seeing others fail and succeed. And, and I really felt like what I was being asked to do limited my opportunities to do that. And so when we talk about conformity, for me, that idea of like conforming to sit down do what you're told to do, and we're all doing the same thing, really felt limiting to me. Just, yeah, I think spiritually and, and, and even intellectually, if you can go that far, you know, as a kid, I just felt like I was, I was limited and then when I had the opportunities to, uh, to walk to school, when I had the opportunities to get a summer job, that's where I felt like my learning was just, you know, blooming. And so, you know, that, I think that's my connection to this idea of, of nonconformity and, and the character of Huck Finn and, and the way that he just kind of goes out into the world and embarks an adventure and learns by doing. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it was so neat to connect with you, Chad, that way right out of the gate as I was getting to know you during my prep was like, oh, you know, Huck Finn was his book and it was definitely my book as well. And I think that that was my experience growing up in Hawaii. I couldn't wait to leave school 
And I actually used to hitchhike home. This was back in the 70s, which is kind of crazy. It was about a 17-mile hitchhike every day after school, but I couldn't wait to get home and to get out on Kaneohe Bay, which is a, you know, a beautiful marine sort of sanctuary, and to do my learning out on the ocean or in the hills up around where we live. So that's really, really cool. And I, I know that it impacted me in this in very similar ways as it as you know, your life and, and Hawk Finn and that experience impacted you. So that's very cool. Yeah. So Chad, before we get into One Stone, you shared with me your philosophy of education, but I came away from your share thinking that you had gifted me something deeper, which is your core belief in who we are as humans, which is that we are inherently curious. And I wonder if you could elaborate on this belief and how you came to it. Was there a a moment in your life when you realized and began acting on this core belief about the inherent curiosity of humans? Well, I mean, I think it's something that I've, I've felt like even as a, as a kid growing up, feeling inherently curious and kind of what we talked about earlier with the connection to, to the character of Huck Finn. But I think where I started, you know, really kind of articulating it more in connection with education was really in my first year of teaching. I mean, I got into teaching completely by accident. I took a job for uh, somebody who was going on sabbatical. I, I had no intention of pursuing a career in education. And, and I immediately fell in love with, with working with kids and learning by doing. The first school that I worked at, we had a great outdoor program and, you know, spent a lot of times a lot of the time learning outside and doing a lot of project-based learning, mm -hmm. which was a completely different way of learning and, and experiencing the world than what I grew up with. And so right away, I, I thought about this, like, man, this is, this is a powerful way to learn. I mean, as a, as an adult, as a teacher, I too was learning mm -hmm. and I couldn't see that being true with the teachers that I had as a kid, I think they really enjoyed working with kids, but I didn't see my teachers learning alongside me. Mm. I saw them as kind of these, like the, the masters of information and that information I was supposed to get from them and regurgitate and demonstrate as opposed to going out into the world and like, you know, lear learning by doing, whether that's rock climbing and backpacking or spending time on the river, whatever it might be. And so I, I really, in that first year of education and working as a teacher, um, it opened my eyes. And, and I really carried with me a lot of the old habits of how I was educated. And I had a, a wonderful middle school director who kind of mentored me. And he would ask me almost every day, well, why, why are you doing this? You know, and he never said like, hey, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Or, you know, maybe think about doing it this way. He always just asked me like, why, why are you doing it like this? Why are you, what are you hoping that the kids get out of this? And, and it really made me question what I was doing it also became, it helped me become more curious about how do kids learn and why are we doing a lot of these things? So curiosity really has been with me since I was a kid, but I started to see it immediately when I got into the classroom with kids. Yeah, that's so cool that, you know, especially that your mentor was acting in a curious way about who you, who you are, or who you were and what you were doing. That's really a neat story. And, you know, when I was growing up, my father was a country doctor for more than 60 years and in a rural setting, but he had a sign chat over his office door that said, humans are no damn good. And it was, <laughs> and it was funny because, you know, we sort of, he was very critical, but a very kind and compassionate man. And, and growing up, you know, six boys, one girl, 
our whole lives, as I mentioned before, was just, you know, we're, it, it was spent outdoors. And so the curiosity was just part of that. And and I think I've gone through my whole life wondering what the nature of, of humans is. And I've also come to that place that I think that they are curious, but there's so much that we need to do to unleash that, which is really the story that you and I are going to get into about One Stone. So that's that's really cool. So, but before, again, we get into One Stone, I wondered to you, Chad, what you thought of the documentary film Most Likely to Succeed. And you wrote to me about High Tech High's Larry Rosenstock and his vision and your 10-year friendship with Ben Daly, who joined High Tech High to teach physics as a founding faculty member and then became school director and chief op- operating officer and chief academic officer. So, Chad, what did Larry and Ben do for education, like writ large? Like, what is their combined contribution, in your opinion, to the field of education? I know that's a big question. Yeah, that, that is a big question, I think. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I can speak to the film and saying this is what it's done at large. I think for me, the experience was there are a lot of innovative schools and a lot of innovative programs out there. A lot of us are doing really great work with students and those stories need to be shared. And, and we need to understand that there really isn't an educational model that fits all students, that we really need to be aware of the fact that, you know, giving diverse options for students is really probably the most important thing that we can do to help students learn. I, I really liked kind of, for me, the takeaway message of like helping that young man, and it's been a while since I've watched the film, but helping the young man kind of finish his work through the summer. And I think you asked a question on the in- intake form on, you know, did I see that as positive or negative? And, and, you know, that was, I kind of struggled with that. I'm like, I don't know, because, you know, <laughs> did, did he hold his team back? And so from a collaborative perspective, you know, was that a good thing? Did that encourage more students to be like, well, if I don't get it done, I can do it later. Or did that really, you know, work with the student and say, Hey, listen, you need more time. You need more one-on-one. Mm-hmm. A lot of what the, the student got, what the kid got out of that experience were, were the things that he needed immediately. And, you know, there was some accountability in there. And so I really, for me, just like being somebody who works with students in different ways, it actually reminded me a lot of some experiences that I had in my first and second year of teaching where it was like, Hey, if, if you gave this work to the kid, if the kid embarked on this project or whatever it might be, was it important in the first place? And if the answer is no, I don't think there's a reason in continuing with it because maybe that's a failure of the teacher. But if the answer is yes, then that is like completely your obligation as a teacher to help the student find a way to to finish up and have success, whatever that might look like. And I also really liked how it, you know, it fostered the sense that students learn in different ways and have different timelines for developing, understanding and learning. And so that student obviously had a a different experience than his his team and his peers, but just as powerful. Mm -hmm. That, that student's name was Brian, you'll recall, and it is quite a dramatic part of the story of most likely to succeed. There are two stories, one of Brian and one of Samantha, who's the young woman who grows up right in front of your eyes and becomes the school play director during the public exhibition. But I, I want to dig into Brian a little bit more, and, and just so that our listeners understand, he's the kid whose team, and sorry, this is a spoiler alert, you've already given it away, Chad, dramatically did not finish their project in time for exhibition night, which is the final sequence of the film. But he kept on working 
on it through the next summer till it was finished. So what I wanted to ask you about is something that you referenced in your response called the long game, which you noted is what all educators would do well to recognize and practice. So what is this long game that you speak of, Chad, and how is Brian's story with his teacher, Scott Swaley, you know, illustrative of that long game in education? I mean, I think the long game, and I kind of spoke to it in previously in our discussion there, but I, I think the long game is is understanding like what you're doing with students and how you are doing those things with students is what is most important. And that that develops and forms their perspective of themselves, their perspective of learning, the, their perspective of value and contribution to the world. And ultimately, as students have interactions with more and more adults and more and more teachers, those opinions about themselves and those perspectives about the world continue to evolve and and form. And so understanding that we are all part of this longer trajectory of of a student's life and a Mm -hmm. student's story. But I think all of us as adults can reflect on an important pivotal moment or something somebody said to us or whatever that had an impact that we hold with us today, Mm -hmm. whether it's positive or negative. And I think that long game is understanding that what we do with students in the now, as much as we might think like it's just a a basic interaction or whatever, might stick with students forever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if it's something larger, like sticking with a project over time and really, you know, helping a student learn the importance of perseverance and grit and understanding that they can do it, or did a student walk away with, with going, hey, here's an adult who actually cares, right? And we think, oh, this is all about perseverance. And for the student, the students walking away, like adults care, my, the, the people at my school care about me. I'm cared for. I have meaning in the world. Mm-hmm. And so just understanding that like what we do today, as trivial as we might see some of the things that we do, might be dramatically impactful in a student's life for, for their lifespan. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that, that's kind of the long game that I have in mind, just kind of understanding the importance of everything we do and how we do it, how we approach working with students is is probably more important than what we do. I think probably for the first four years of my teaching career, I had no clue about the long game. I, I And maybe that's true of a lot of young teachers. I guess you're just sort of in it and you're in over your head, you're in the deep end of the pool. But I, I definitely remember when I switched from a, a large private high school to a very small all-girls private high school, that all of a sudden the long game came into view. And I think it had to do with the fact that I was starting to realize what was happening to my students after they had left, you know, my time as as a teacher. And I wonder, Chad, if like in the arc of your life, were there moments when you began to realize that that long game was unfolding and that these relationships with your students were part of that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was a profound moment. I think my experience with, with education and I say education because it's very different than learning, like the system of education. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My experience, I mean, it's similar to yours. Like I I didn't have the most positive experience. I had some great moments, but in general, I'd say like, oh, that was, (laughs) that wasn't a great use of my first 18 years on, on earth. Yeah. But I did, I did learn a lot from it and having kids, you know, I've got three daughters, Mm. 21 year old, a 19 year old and a 13 year old. Like I, 
having kids has been greatly influential for me, like seeing them come home and, you know, what they take from a day at school compared to what maybe their teachers walk away with. All of these things just have informed me of just having more empathy and understanding that, you know, learning is a lifelong endeavor and school happens to be a part of it. There's a lot of learning that happens outside of that context. And this, that happens inside of the context as well is, is highly influential. But I'm not really sure I had like a moment, like an epiphany where I was like, wow, it just has been kind of this essence of, you know, especially as I started to enjoy education, I, I you know, and working with kids and, and having this uh, middle school director who would ask me constantly, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah. Really made me kind of like face the music and, and you know, ask myself, like, what am I doing? What, what are we trying to get out of this? And, you know, considering that I really, as far as content and knowledge goes, remember very little. For some reason, sentence diagramming has stuck with me. Wow. Really? But I remember very, very <laughs> little about my elementary and middle school education. And so then I asked myself, well, what did I get out of it? Because I, I was there eight hours a day. I had to get something out of it. And then I started to think, well, how I see myself, how I feel about myself, my, my sense of worth and identity and whatnot really was impacted by my, you know, years in, in public ed. And yeah. so I, I kind of thought about that with kids thinking I need to give them what they need and understanding that what I have as far as content and curriculum is so secondary from what they need as young humans. Yeah. That's so neat, Chad. My daughter is 30 now, and she's actually a teacher in the Bay Area in Marin County. And she works for something called the Vilda School, which in her program, which is called Nature Garden, she takes these little kids who are four and five, I think, and six years old, the kiddos, as we call them, and they learn all day long out in the forests of Marin County. And it's so remarkable to watch her do her work, and also that she's playing a long game with them. I, I get chicken skin, or we call it chicken skin here in Hawaii, goosebumps, thinking about 20 years from now that those little kiddos might look back and go, wow, Emma was an important part of my life in the very beginning as a learner, as a curious human being, right? And it just, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's something that makes the teaching profession special is when you're when you're playing that long game and you're in it for the kids for their whole lives. I, I wonder if you if you think about it that way. Oh, absolutely. I definitely think of, you know, and and I I hope I'm in it their whole lives. I hope they remember me. And so it's always nice to to get an email or run into somebody that I taught. Yeah. You know, that's like fully, fully, I guess air quotes, grown up, you know, out in the <laughs> world doing whatever it is they're, that they're doing or have a family of their own. It's always so cool to to meet with them and and you know, for sure. They remember all the cool, crazy things that we did and, and, you know, and, and you can just see in who they are as a person and their reaction to you that you have had an impact on them. So yeah, I do think about it all the time. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And, and the extent to which they see you as a person who really respected them as a young person, as a learner, as a curious human, I think that that's an important part of the equation. So that's actually really for cool. Sure. Yeah. So, hey, everybody, stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with more questions for Chad Carlson. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. 
This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. One idea isn't enough. It takes hundreds of ideas to explore, expand, develop, and innovate in order to make one idea truly great. It takes a collaborative, supportive team that builds on each other's ideas. It takes a safe, creative culture where people feel confident and willing to share their crazy ideas. A place where judgment is deferred, ambiguity is embraced, and everyone brings optimism. A place where people are free to be themselves and where every voice matters. This creates a culture of ideation, of voice, of community, of empowerment, of trust that turns one idea into millions. Hey everyone, we are back with Chad Carlson, the Director of Research and Design at the One Stone Lab School. So Chad, I'm going to go off the rails here. Bear with me. You listed Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, as, like Huck Finn, one of your notable reads. And I also read Collapse, and I want to pose a possibly provocative question from it. So for our listeners, Collapse is about some of the, for lack of a better word, stupid things humans have done that caused the collapse of societies or civilizations. And I've been thinking lately that the possible collapse of our American democracy might be related to our failure to realize just how damaging more than a hundred years of standardized factory model of education, testing, siloed learning, and irrelevant learning has been to our culture. So I suppose somebody might think that this is a wacky idea, but I'm actually being serious. And so to what extent, Chad, do you see our obsession with reductive lowest common denominator metrics like grades and test scores as damaging to our kids and their futures and our, our country's future? And I, I understand that that's a leading question, but I'm very curious to know what you think about that. Yeah, it is a, a very leading question. Definitely not an apolitical question. And I could, I could get on my soapbox. That, that is, I mean, I don't know what direction, how to take this. I, mm. I really enjoy Collapse and I've used it in the classroom quite a bit to really kind of study history. Like what's the point in learning about human history? And, and, you know, we often hear like, you know, history repeats itself and kids can tell you that all the time. History repeats itself. And why do we learn history? So we can learn from our mistakes. Yeah, they can, you know, they can parrot that stuff really quickly. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And so let's look at some civilizations in the past that, mm. you know, have repeated the same mistakes over and over again. And they haven't learned from, you know, humans haven't learned from their mistakes. But as far as to like what extent is reductive learning damaging to our society, you know, I guess the, the question has got to be whose society? I think reductive learning is like wonderfully ingenious model for social reproduction. Mm. And it becomes very easy to organize a, a society and control a society that isn't able to 
think critically, isn't able to connect, you know, historical past with the present. And so I think from a social perspective, the American education system was designed for a purpose, right? And that, what is that purpose? And it really serves two purposes. One, to, to prepare the young for the workforce, which for whatever, 150 years was an industrialized workforce. And then two, to prepare citizens to engage in a democratic society. Hmm. And we have to ask ourselves, are we continuing to do that? Are we, are we developing you know, young minds that are ready to embark in the 21st century and what the workforce can and should look like today? And are we, are we developing young minds to engage critically in civic society? And I, I, I think, I mean, my, my response to those questions are no, we're not. We're not doing a good job with that at all. Are we developing minds that make it easy for right and left to get votes? Absolutely. So, you know, I, I, I have a hard time not being cynical with this particular topic just because it is so frustrating. There's plenty of science on how um, young minds, even more formed minds learn. And it seems like we go against the science mm-hmm. and, and go with that idea of social reproduction and that re- we're just reproducing power. And so, and we've seen it in the past, you know, it, it happens a lot. So mm. I don't know if that uh, answers your question directly, but I, I think there's a lot in there in my response that like <laughs> my, my, my response is it is our reductive education does not help our society, but that's the society that I think we should have. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I mean, obviously I've spent a couple of weeks preparing for this interview today and, and most of that time Chad has been spent, you know, just in this wonderful deep dive into onestone.org, you know, your, your website and, you know, in page after page after page, I think the question is sort of born out of my own frustration that what I was viewing on all of these web pages was the exact opposite of collapse. It's it's the actual opening up of an empathetic and caring and compassionate and connected culture at your school. And I just keep thinking, like, how do we how can we do this better in the United States? And I think yeah. that that's where it came from. No, I, pre- I, pre- I appreciate the question. I think it's a very important question. We could have a, a podcast on this. Topic <laughs> on <its own. laughs> we sure could. Yeah. So now let's let's actually get into one stone. But before I do, let me just say to our listeners that this will not be, you know, a conversation where we explain one stone A to Z. And for that, really truly, you can go to onestone.org where A to Z is all there, I promise. It's amazing. And it's beautifully laid out, Chad. Your your website is just fantastic. Awesome. So instead, I'm going to deep dive into a few elements of one stone that I found super fascinating. So first, One Stone Lab School started as an after-school program in 2008 by Joel and Teresa Poppin. So, Chad, what was the essential question the Poppins were asking that ultimately led to the formation of One Stone? Like, what was the design challenge the Poppins ran as a way to bring One Stone into being? Um, So you mean as the the organization in 2008 and not necessarily... Yeah, lab school in 2016. Okay. Correct. Well, I, I think really Joel Poppin does a wonderful job talking about the name One Stone and where where that what's the origin story of the name. And I think there's so much in this in this story. But as a young boy, Joel and his brother would go down to their creek and then they would skip rocks on the creek. And I don't know, I'm gonna butcher the story, but it basically goes like this. One of them looks at the other and, and just basically says, you know, I I wonder how many of these stones we have to throw until we can actually change the course of this, of this creek, of the stream. 
And then the other looked at him and just said, well, it all starts with one stone. Wow. And so the idea of one stone is that idea that, you know, all voices matter, that everybody can have an impact in making the world a better place, whether that is the smallest impact to doing something large on a, a massive scale. You know, all actions and all contributions toward the, the world matter. And this idea that students really in, in a lot of systems of education, whether it's public, private, or charter, really lack voice. They lack the ability to drive their learning and do things that are important and relevant to them and meaningful to them. And so their idea was to start an organization where, and they wanted to be out of system. That's why they did it really as an out of, like an after school. It was more, I think after school is like using the system to define yourself, but it was something that happened out. It didn't even take place at a school. Mm. They had their own spot and whatnot to give students the opportunity to get together and, you know, solve problems in their community that they felt felt was were important. And mm-hmm. so starting in 2008, you've got kids coming together. They had a student-led board. So the board of the One Stone Directors is a student. The board always has two-thirds or more students on the board. So there's just a couple of adults and, and a dozen or so students at any particular time. And students decide what it is they are going to do. And you saw it. From 2008 to about 2015, I mean, the thing just took off mm-hmm. where, you know, kids were, were coming after school simply by word of mouth. There really wasn't any marketing around the thing. And kids showing up all of a sudden, like, I want to I be part of this. Taking on issues of mental health, homelessness with the community. We've got a vibrant refugee community here in Boise you know, getting involved in refugee issues Mm. to dealing with, you know, students who are grieving loss of their parents or have been diagnosed with terminal cancer, just various different topics that were important to students. And they were able to do what we call experiential service. It wasn't service learning. It was experiential service where they sit down with, with their partner, with their person they're working with to use design thinking, although we weren't using those terms, to really kind of create solutions to problems and needs that they found in the community. So it was really a powerful model that, that empowered students to drive their learning, empowered students to develop a sense of empathy and connection with their community and the, the people in their community. Mm, wow. That's so amazing. You know, again, I'm getting goosebumps here and, and just as often happens in these interviews with educators, I get this overwhelming feeling, Chad, of wanting to be back in school again, you know, right? uh, go back 40 <laughs> years into the past. So, and speaking of, you wrote to me some thoughts about scaling the One Stone learning model. And you mentioned in that something called the Living in Beta Wayfinding Program. And Chad, I love everything about the concept of wayfinding. And so I wonder if you could explain what you mean by living in beta. And by the way, I'm 63 years old and I'm nowhere near coming out of beta. So this really touches something deep inside of me. And I just think if folks are going to understand One Stone, they have to grasp this concept of living in beta and the wayfinding program. Yeah, and, and we've got a, a spot on the One Stone website there that more or less explains living in beta. But the idea behind living in beta is that we are, all of us, are in this constant kind of exploration and discovery of who we are. And as we move through the world, we have a number of experiences that shape us and form our opinions and perspectives, whether we're aware of it or not. The idea of living in beta is to do two things. One, to help students develop the tools and the skills to move forward in the world to kind of design their learning and and design their 
their kind of paths after high school and with as much agency as possible. So, you know, those types of tools and skills are, are going to be really based on students doing, going out and having like internships and job shadows and, and testing different things, but also learning how, you know, developing basic work skills of like collaboration and communication and what have you. Mm -hmm. The other aspect behind living a beta is developing a living a beta mindset. Mm -hmm. And the mindset I think is, is more important than any tool tools you can develop, you know, like specific hard skills and stuff you can develop at any point in your life. Mindsets are, are much more difficult. And so what we want to do with young learners is instill the mindset in students that in their lives, they are going to be continually defining themselves and they have the opportunity to pivot, to, to change direction at any point that they want. Mm. I think, you know, I, I read somewhere like one of the most damaging questions you can ask a kid is what do you want to be when you grow up? It gives this really static sense of self. You are not formed yet, but there will be a point in life where you will be. Mm -hmm. And we want to move away from that. We want students to understand that who they are now is equally as important as who they will become. And when they become that person, when they're older, they're going to continue to become somebody different in their older age. And so we go through this life of beta of continually trying things on, testing things and digging deeper and pursuing that, or perhaps stepping back going, you know, I don't really like that, or I liked this aspect of it and I want to move in a different direction. Mm. So we're, we're really looking at helping students develop skills and mindsets mm. to live a life of continual learning and to really become designers and then have agency in their lives and move away from that sense of what do I want to become? What's my career? Mm. Chad, my day job is at a technology company. And one of the things about the concept of beta, which I think this is sort of something that the public sees, is that beta can be a very problematic thing because it's unfinished and there are glitches and there are things that you have to fix and that's why you're in beta. But I think that the way that you and One Stone see it is that's actually the essence of it. It's almost like there are these little failures that you can continue to work on and perfect as you move forward. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that. imperfect at best. And so, yeah, understanding that life is going to be full of, of failure. And how do you learn from that and fail forward? You know, life is full of opportunity, you know, and, and I don't know the specific numbers off the top of my head, but I know that a certain number of people, at least in the American society, are completely unfulfilled with whatever it is they're doing in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're seeing this moment of kind of reckoning with the the great resignation, you know, COVID has kind of spurred this like, hey, maybe it's a good time for me to to change it up and mix up what I'm doing. Yeah. So we've, we've seen a lot of that. And we want students to, to embrace the idea that they are continually testing and they are in a continual state of, of imperfection and a continual state of formation. You can learn at, at any age and you can grow and change at any age. And, you know, that's something that's just really important to us that we, you know, we talk about the long game that we want students to walk away with as their lifelong learning and lifelong takeaway from one stone is I have the power, I have the mindset, a growth mindset, skills to become who I want to become. And the only person that can define that is me. Mm -hmm. And so 
living in beta really, you know, and, it, and it's hard because I mean, we work, we are a nine through 12 lab school and we work with kids nine through 12 in the after school experiential service. And, you know, so when you start working with kids when they're, you know, 15 or whatever, they've, they've gone through, you know, a certain number of years with kind of this like fixed mindset about what, what, what learning can and should look like. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of, you know, vulnerability that students have to experience to start understanding, like, it's okay to try things out and say, you know, I want to become a doctor and go do a, uh, a job shadow or an internship and come back and go, I hated that. You know, <laughs> right. I, I, and we've had a number of students who, I mean, literally they, they, they were going to become a doctor, you know, they were going to become an engineer, they were going to become something. And then they realized like, I, I don't want to do that. Mm. I like something in, I don't know, the area of design, or I really appreciate like civics and environmental studies and all of the stuff we've been doing out in the field with this one immersion. I, I want to pursue that. And for them to, at that age, to get off of the kind of conveyor belt of, you know, whoever it is they define themselves as for so long and to pivot it's really hard because they don't have the thing that we have as adults and that's perspective and experience to understand, right. you know, that that's okay. Right. And so uh, helping students experience that, I think is really one of the major points and goals of, of living a beta. Oof, boy. And, and thank you, Chad, because this whole living in beta thing that I've been studying so intently over the last two weeks has liberated me in a lot of ways because it just gave me a sense of reassurance that being in beta is actually a great thing, you know? It's just a nice feeling. It's a great thing. Yeah. So one more question before we go to break. And Chad, I want to return to the concept of students as members of the board of directors. So I was privileged to because of you, to watch a film about One Stone called Rise last night. And in that film, there is a truly powerful scene which captures a board of directors meeting at One Stone. And the filmmaker captures the directors entering a large, well-lit, airy room, and he captures the meeting itself, and he captures the directors chatting after the meeting as they exit the room. And of course, the drama of the scene, at least for me, is that the majority of directors are students. And my question, Chad, might seem kind of strange, because I'm asking you to explain my reaction to the scene or and, and people like me who care deeply about reimagining education. But why, why is that scene so powerful to me? Like, I just kept wondering later, like, what is it about that scene that just touches me so deeply? And, and why, why would viewers who are interested in the reimagination of education be so moved by that scene? Well, that's a good question. I think there's so many different visceral responses to that scene, you know, and it's quite possible that, you know, you were, you were seeing governance and we don't typically associate students or, or kids in yeah. roles of, of governance of a, of a legitimate nonprofit organization and an independent school. You know, you might see a, a representative, a student representative to the board yeah. who, you know, makes guest appearances here and there. But these are students who are actually voting on and discussing and deliberating real topics related to governance, whether that's operations, budgeting, or strategic planning, whatever it might be. You know, I think that that, that probably has something to do with the idea that, you know, like maybe, maybe the, the, the wow factor, like, well, there's students actually doing this. Mm. The other is if you've ever been on a board of directors, Josh, mm -hmm. I would say a, a lot of them, at least I have like with community nonprofits, 
man, they're, they're, uh, they aren't very well organized and they aren't very productive. And yeah. I, you know, I'm not a member of the One Stone board, but I have gone into to present initiatives and to give updates on things that we're doing and what have you, because we've got various different initiatives we're working on. And it's a well-oiled machine. It, you know, I mean, they, they follow the meeting minutes. You've got, it's not just one person leading the show. You've got a number of kind of leaders of different areas of the organization who speak and report. And they, in turn, report back to smaller committees that have students and adults on it. So it's a, it's a real legitimate governing operation that I think in itself, regardless of the age of the people in that room, is also kind of inspiring. It's like, well, that's how a board meeting should look and operate. And so, so anyway, I think there's different levels in which you could react and respond to, mm. but I, I do know several adults who have been in those meetings who I've also been on boards of other organizations say the same thing. They're mm. like, wow, they, they are all prepared. They're all knowledgeable. They're all articulate and they're all like productive and, and this thing really works. Mm. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's not just a symbolic gesture to governance. Yeah. You know, I think what's so interesting is that it, you know, as I was watching it, I, I wanted to sort of just like pound my fist on the table and say, of course they're prepared. Of course they're ready for these positions. Like, what's the matter with you adults? Don't you realize how prepared they are? And I think that might be why it's such a powerful scene for me. I, I believe in them so much. Yeah. And I think I was tapping into it at that moment, you know? Absolutely. And also it's remarkable how organized, as you talked about, how organized the meeting is. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It is amazing. And, and when I, when I have to present to that group, I, I get nervous and I, you know, I've presented to larger philanthropic organizations and whatnot, which I, you know, I have a certain level of, of nervousness, but when I'm presenting to the kids, like I've gone in there and been hammered with questions in a positive way, but questions that are like, where are these coming from? And they, you know, they didn't ask these questions beforehand or develop them with, with adults. They're like asking them as they arise. And I'm just like, man, the inter, the level of interaction is it's powerful. It's yeah. it's really cool. So anyway, yeah, it's great stuff. So hey everybody, stay with us. We'll be back with more questions for Chad Carlson. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. As a What School Could Be podcast listener, I know you're curious about what's happening in Hawaii schools. This is Christy Oda, and together with National Board Certified Teachers, we launched Educators Edge, a new podcast that gathers innovative educators with diverse perspectives to collaborate around a topic of their choice. 
There's something so special about hearing teachers talk story about the work they do to transform education for Hawaii's young learners. I invite you to listen on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Anchor, or go to bit.ly slash educators edge to subscribe. Aloha and mahalo. An idea needs to be believed in, cared for, and protected. It takes grit to see it come to life. It takes collaboration and trust to let others help it take shape. And when it does, it will spread its wings and take flight and become bigger than you are. It will fill you with pride as you watch it turn into something more powerful than you first imagined. That's why the best idea is never really complete. We must be willing to continually test our idea, poke holes in it, and learn from failure. An idea should live in a constant state of iteration, evolution, and change. This is how one idea can disrupt for good. Hey everyone, we are back with Chad Carlson, One Stone Lab School's Director of Research and Design. So Chad, a few weeks ago, I asked you about some of your most epic moments as an educator, and you replied by sharing how much you want to see kids get away from school and out into the world into maybe Model UN or, you know, quiz bowls, anywhere outside of their comfort zone. So given we are in the middle of a, of a horrific crisis with Ukraine being invaded by Russia, I wonder if you could share how taking kids to something like Model UN is a wonderful way to get them outside of their comfort zones and into something we at What School Could Be might call real world challenges. Like what's that all about for you? Real world challenges, whether they're outdoor trips, I've done a lot of outdoor trips, model United Nations, you know, whatever it might be, you know, asking students, giving students the opportunity to think in real time, to make decisions in real time, to respond to real crises and consider diverse perspectives and viewpoints is what it's all about. And so Mm -hmm. giving, giving opportunities for students to have those experiences, I think better prepares them for just life. And so being in the classroom, being in the school, there are certain like norms and expectations. And if you can get out of that physical space and get out into what we we call the, the real world or whatever you want to say, where things are, you know, not already decided, they're not already doing something where there's an expected outcome, I think allows them to, to really experience the the world in the way in which they're going to experience the world once they leave the con- kind of contrived context of the school. Mm. So giving them those opportunities. And, you know, like I said, I've worked with students doing, you know, intellectual and academic pursuits, going to things like Model United Nations. And, you know, I know that they, you know, our students at one zone also do a mock court, and mock trial, those types of things mm-hmm. to doing outdoor trips or experiential service with refugee groups where it's like, Hey, you know what? The, the outcome's not already decided and we're just making sure that you get there. The outcome is really this interaction between you and whatever it is you're doing. And let's see where this thing goes. Mm. You know, you shared with me a wonderful letter written by a student who went through Model UN and was writing to share that she had just accepted a job in Washington, D.C., working with Afghan refugees. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that letter and what it meant to you, you know, I'm sure it meant a lot. Is is that a fair statement? Yeah, it, it absolutely means a lot. And, you know, I've received a couple of those emails and just kind of like I might send out an email like, hey, how are you doing? What are you doing these days? Or or get one out of the blue of like, 
I've had a couple other students who've gone on to DC and, and worked with nonprofits, another who's working with an agency that works with immigration. And, you know, it's, it's powerful for me to see like, hey, something that we did in their younger period of time in life had an impact on the direction that they're going in, in the world now. And they're using that experience for good, mm-hmm. you know, to, to affect positive change and to address something that, you know, kind of breaks their heart or is meaningful for them. Yeah. And, you know, like that, that's all I could ask for students. And I've told my daughters the same thing. Like, I just, I just want you to, to be happy in life and do things that you find are important to you and not try to, you know, appease or try and put on this kind of, I don't know, imposter thing to, to please others. Like mm-hmm. just do things that are important to you. And so when I, when I get emails like that, it's really cool to see like, wow, students are doing things that are important to them. Yeah. And I had some minor role off to the side, whether it was a single stone mm-hmm. and they built around, around that single stone. I don't know, but it's, it's always really cool. And I know like that particular email that you're talking about, she also had a number of other amazing people in her life that have also equally shaped her who she is. And so I know, like, again, like, like it's not just one person, but it is, it is, you know, it is fulfilling to get those emails and be like, Oh, that's really cool. Like that makes me feel good about what I have done and and I'm doing. Yeah. So kind of along the same lines, wow, there's just so many stories at one stone's site about student activism. And I worked through them during my prep in the interests of limited time, I decided to focus on one of them, which has to do with a young person named Liam, who led what he called a moment of elevation during a climate strike last year. And he talks about organizing a rally of a thousand people, but opening it with a guided breathing exercise, which sounded just incredible. I was trying to picture it in my mind. So Chad, who is Liam and, and what is his moments story, his moment of elevation? Like in what ways, did the moment shift maybe the arc of, of Liam's life? Well, I think, you know, so, so Liam is a graduate from One Stone. I'm losing track of, of my <laughs> sense of time. Yeah. Um, I believe Liam graduated two years ago. So uh, the class of 2020, if I'm not mistaken, and, you know, took on the role of organizing this climate strike here in Boise. And, you know, the way the climate strike works and it's, you know, climate strikes across the country, particularly with, you know, student age groups, they leave school during a certain time of of the day and they, you know, we're here in Boise, so it's the capital. So they all go to the state house and there's these, you know, just really kind of long steps that the, the students all get on the steps and they'll have a podium up there and various different students will get up there and speak and talk about, you know, what the climate strike needs to them and, and global climate change and what have you. Really rallying activism, not just political, but also just civic activism. And so for Liam, I mean, somebody who really, you know, the, the global climate change is a topic that's near and dear to his heart that, that absolutely is looking into the future of what, you know, the future holds for Liam, what the future holds for all of us. And kind of we talked about earlier in this conversation about how we continue to do these things that we shouldn't be blind to that are not, you know, setting up future generations for success on this planet. For Liam to be able to to guide a group of students to be a leader for something that's important for him is just incredibly empowering Hmm. for Liam. And so, you know, that kind of like moment of meditation and, and breathing to lead students through that 
I think is also equally important because there's this visceral human connection that he was able to bestow upon everyone in that group. And I think it'd be easy to get a group of kids all fired up. How do you get a group of kids to, to settle in and be calm and understand that what they're doing is important and how they articulate themselves and how they act is also equally important to people listening. Mm -hmm. And so the ability for him to, to just kind of garner the visionary control of that group, I think was something that was just so powerful for him and, and gave him that sense of like, I can do these things. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a student, I'm under 18 and I'm having an impact in the world now. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, really, really empower, empowering for a person like Liam, mm -hmm. for any, for any student for that matter. But this particular case was, you know, large scale. Yeah. I think the whole idea of disrupting what we would think a rally would look and sound and feel like, which, you know, typically is a huge amount of energy and people chanting and, and so on. And to get everybody to, to just calm down and go through a meditation, to me, that really jumped. That to me felt very disruptive of what we would normally think something like that would, would happen or how it would happen. Yeah. And, and it's remarkable. And as I was saying a few minutes ago, of course, kids are capable of doing these kinds of things, you know? Of course they are. Yeah. <laughs> right. Awesome. So Chad, I'm going to quote a paragraph from One Stone's website related to college and careers. And so, quote, led by Lisa Fisher, One Stone coach and author of Admissions by Design, Stop the Madness and Find the Best College for You, students prepare for successful futures through a personalized approach to college and career exploration, bringing together all they have learned through their wayfinding process to head out into the world with purpose and intention, unquote. So, Chad, what is One Stone's approach to stopping the madness, if you will, and what is Lisa Fisher's work all about? Lisa Fisher, uh, you know, obviously working with students who are in their graduating year at One Stone, and they've been through three years or in their fourth year of of living in beta. And so she's able to tap into the sense of identity that the students are already forming about who they are and who they're becoming and where they want to go and how they want to design their lives. And so, you know, you have a lot less focus of the pure academic pursuits in the college exploration process and a lot more personal pursuits. What type of learning space do I want to be in and be a part of? What does my community you need to look like in order for me to be successful? What types of things do I want to learn? You know, and helping students look at it that way, as opposed to simply the greatest school because of yeah. something from, you know, what is it? The, the U S news report, yeah. or I forget who, yep, who does news. these great, you know, college. Yeah. The, the college rankings mm -hmm. moving away from that and, and really kind of going into who am I and, and what do I need in order to, to apply to a place that is a good fit for me. And again, like our focus is not on college. Our focus is on opening doors. And we tell this to students all the time. Like we want you to open as many doors as possible. And so if that means you apply to a couple of schools and get accepted by one or all of them, great. Those doors are open. Mm. We've seen to it that a hundred percent of our students have been accepted by at least a single college. Most of our students have been accepted by multiple colleges 
And, you know, we do a really good job of saying like, hey, that door is open because you might have a different decision, like a different thought about what you want to do your junior year or when you're 16 or 17 than you have now. Or even like decision day is like early May. They might think entirely different about what they want to do in January and come along May. It's like, oh, I wish I had. We had one student who just was absolutely like, I'm not doing the craziness of college and all that stuff. And we're like, fair enough. You know, like yeah. we, we want you to open doors, but fair enough. He came back six months later after everybody graduated and said, I want to do this thing now. So mm-hmm. he's a graduate. We brought him back into One Stone and he would come hang out in the afternoons and we'd work on things to, to help him prepare for his application. And so, you know, we tell all the students they have um, kind of office hours for life. They're always welcome to come back to the school and do it, you know, tap into the resources that are there for them. And so to, to stop the, the madness that you say, like, we really try and get students to tap into who they are as opposed to what do colleges want? Yeah. You know, because then they end up becoming these imposters and they're trying to impress others as opposed to, you know, hey, just understand there are hundreds of colleges out there and they're all lining up because they want you. Yeah. So who are you? Be comfortable with who you are and try and find the right fit. Yeah. Oh, Chad, thank you for saying that. You know, I, looking back on my 17 years as a teacher, I have some regrets about the ways that I might have participated <laughs> in the madness, you know, and that was just encouraging kids, you know, to almost rack up numbers in terms of the number of places that they applied to. And I think I learned over time that that was not a good thing. And I, I changed, you know, my approach to something more akin to what you were talking about. But I do have yeah. a dream that at some point as a, as a society, as a culture, that we can, we can move away from that process, which is very much a marketing process that happens with the colleges. And they're just out to get as many applications as possible so that they can come across as exclusive and that, you know, kids will make informed and reasonable decisions about their own interests. And I, I hope we get there. I think we are. I think we're definitely moving in that direction. Yeah, I think you are seeing more colleges change their admissions approach and and really try to find like, well, who do we want walking around our our campus? You know, like what type of community and culture do we want to have here? Yeah, You are seeing that change. It is subtle, but, you know, there's still that like acceptance rate and all of these crazy numbers that they throw at you to make it seem like you'd be lucky if you got into college. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, behind credit card debt, college debt is like some of the highest in the country. So I think they're doing okay. Yeah. Awesome. So Chad, a couple more questions before we close up shop today. This one, forgive me, it's a a little bit of a preamble in order to get to the question itself. So you did two stints at the community school, which is an independent boarding school in Sun Valley, Idaho. And in both stints, you led outdoor learning programs and much, much more. And your two stints at the community school, your life outdoors and your time at One Stone, which has an emphasis on being outdoors as well, got me really thinking about equity and access. So your early experiences in outdoor education got me thinking about an on-being podcast interview with or by Krista Tippett with the Irish poet John O'Donohue. And in that interview, O'Donohue talks about waking up each day and walking the ocean cliffs in Ireland, finding what he calls the inner landscape of beauty. But he also talks about how hard it is to find that beauty in rough urban spaces. And I wonder if you could share your thoughts about how we as a society give all kids opportunities to experience the quote, the wild, the free, the elemental, even if, for example, you know, those students live on the south side of Chicago or in 
downtown Miami or even downtown Boise. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I think you're referring to community school with their outdoor program. I've also worked at another school that interestingly I did two stints with that also has an outdoor program and then spent a couple of years down at a school in Bogota, Colombia, mm-hmm. you know, talk about, you know, a school that, you know, the students are all very, very urban population. They, they, the kids don't have access to outdoors. I mean, they're in the city of eight and a half to nine million. Right. And we also did a lot of work with the students who didn't have a lot of money to go out and do outdoor things, to go out and do things in the outdoors, you know, really being the, the outdoors, like away from urban centers and, and connecting with nature. But I, I think like it looks different for all students. And I think as, as much as I want to sit here and, and I don't know if I'm taking this in the right direction, as much as I want to chant and, and put on the pedestal these outdoor programs and connecting with nature, not all students feel that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I've experienced that with the students at One Stone where it's like car camping for some of the kids. Like we've had students, it's the first time they've slept outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've never and, and they were in a tent. They weren't literally outside, but they, that was outside. And that was just incredibly impactful in many times in a very positive way. But you have some kids who are just like, no way, man, I am living in the great indoors. I want nothing to do with the outdoors. And, that, and that's okay too. And so this idea of, of inner beauty is finding, finding the beauty and finding the wild and finding the natural around you everywhere, mm. whether you are in a, you know, a city context or a mountainous or even Hawaii by the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're blessed with wonderful nature and access to nature and a lot of inner city youth are not, but there's also beauty all around them and helping them see that and experience that in a way that's true to them and is, you know, culturally inclusive and sensitive, I think is, is the important aspect of something like an experiential learning, mm. helping students get out and connect and see that kind of, that outer landscape beauty and connecting with their inner beauty is who they are understanding the way that they see the world is also equally as important and powerful. So I I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. It's a tough question to to discuss. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that what I was thinking about is that when, let's say that you've got an educator on the South side of Chicago or in downtown Miami, and they're looking at onestone.org and they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, that's not possible for us. But in fact, it is possible because you just redefine what the elemental, the wild and the free means. You can find that wherever you are and you just have to shed the idea that, you know, that it costs money to get outdoors, to go to an outdoor program. And you can just start thinking about, you know, all the areas around you in that urban environment that are wild and free and elemental. And what are they and how do you tap kids into them. And I think that allows us, Chad, to get past the kind of reductive conversation about resources. Like they have resources and we don't have resources. But in fact, everywhere that you go is a is a wealth of resources for learning, right? We provide a lot of really cool opportunities for the students at One Stone. We are a tuition-free school and that it's not easy. Yeah. And what we have done is we've tapped into the community and tapped into the community resources. We don't just take and ask of our community, we also give back through a number of our experiential service projects and our our design labs where students are working with community partners. And so through our students learning and work and the projects that they are working with with community partners, they're Mm -hmm. developing social capital. And so this, this idea of social capital, I mean, you have so many organizations that are willing to support us or willing to like 
lend a hand or lend a resource or whatever it might be. Mm. We also take advantage of, of a lot of free spaces in our community. Mm. You know, we've got amazing parks. We've got a really cool skate park. We've got a number of really cool resources that the kids just absolutely love that gets them out into the outdoors in, in a way in which it's, again, I mean, Boise is it's not a large city, but we're, we're in a city. A lot of kids who've never been on trails or slept outside or whatever it might be. Yeah. And they're still connecting with the outdoors just in the day to day. If it's like, hey, you know what? We need a moment to, to unwind and we're going to, as a group, walk to the park and do what we were going to do here outside. Yeah. Or maybe just spend five minutes doing like a Liam activity where it's like, let's just stop and breathe for a minute and listen to the noises around us and, and connecting to the outdoors in a way in which they don't maybe normally do it. And so just being, being in a city does not limit what you can do. And, and having lack of resources, I'm going to say, is a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. And my, you know, my advice would be is to use the power of students to develop community resources over time organizations and companies and corporations will give back because of the good that you contribute toward the community. Yeah. I was, I'm I'm sitting here, Chad in Hawaii, smiling and thinking about Liam and the amount of social capital that he must have generated in that moment of elevation, right? I mean, you know, even with organizations that care about the climate, the social capital that he must have built for himself and for One Stone is huge in a moment like that. But it requires that you give kids an opportunity to act on things that they care about. And that's a point that you've been making over and over again throughout this entire conversation. So that's great. So Chad, here we are at the end. So Last question. If if I were interviewing a one stone student, I, I think it would be very natural to ask that student which teacher was the most important mentor, you know, guide or coach. So I'm gonna flip that script and ask you if you could share a story of a student or students who mentored you, who influenced you, Chad, who you learned from in profound and inspiring ways. Oh gosh, you know, I hesitate to, to mention names, but I've had a number of, I, I think really like all of my students have been influential, not to, to, you know, cop out response. But, you know, one thing that we do at, at One Stone is we've got kind of advisory groups or, or mentor groups. Mm. And I had a group of 10 students and they just, you know, and, and all of them, they, they all had different strengths and they all brought different things to the community. And, and some, you know, were, we're dealing with personal struggles and, and really struggling to drive their own learning and own their learning. And others were just like, get out of their way. Mm. You know, anything that I can do, we'll just muck it up, you know? So just all different levels of what they were doing. And, you know, I, I learned from every one of them. And I think like when, when you step back and you, you know, you really start looking at the students as individuals and not as a whole, like, Oh, my class or my group, and you start looking at the students as individual humans. I mean, it's so much more powerful and you learn so much from them. But, you know, I, I've worked with students who have had like mental health challenges, dealing with anxiety and, mm-hmm. and what have you. And, you know, I've, I've had issues in my life where it's like, wait a minute, I think I'm experiencing anxiety. I used to be this, you know, kind of invincible. And now I'm like starting to find chinks in my armor. And so seeing how students work with that and deal with that uh, has really been you know, humanizing for me and help, help me kind of recognize things that I can do for my own personal life. We would ask the students at One Stone, and I've done this throughout my teaching career, but, but I, you know, I'm just going to use One Stone as an example. We're reimagining learning and doing things very differently. 
And so I, I kept telling my, my group of mentees and advisees, there's not a thing that I ask you to do that I myself won't do. Hmm. And I said, you can hold me to that at any point in time, because we do ask the students to do a number of vulnerable, you know, activities that require a lot of vulnerability and a lot of sharing and, and, you know, kind of getting into the uncomfort zone. And, you know, I'm, I'm right there with them. And I learn from them by listening to them and responding and hearing them. And so to me, like, I can't just hold one student up because I just don't think that would be fair. Mm -hmm. I think that all of them I look back on and and go, gosh, how lucky I was to be around them. And I hope they're doing well in the world. And, you know, I hope they feel comfortable reaching back out to me because, you know, again, like I feel like living is this lifelong endeavor. And those people that were part of your life in high school very much had influence in your life. There's no reason to not continue bringing them back into your life. Yeah, that's great, Chad. Thank you. And so, Chad, thank you for this time today. And I, I hope that you and your wife and three daughters, your family, I hope that you all stay safe and in good health. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to help reimagine education in our country and even in the world. And I'll do everything I can to get the word out about One Stone because I think there's so much that we can learn from what's happened at One Stone. And we appreciate all the work that you're doing up there in Idaho. So take care and thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Josh. And I hope, you know, listeners who are interested in One Stone, I think Josh did a good job pitching our website. We've got a great website. <laughs> if you are interested in things that we're doing, come, you know, re reach out to me and, you know, there's plenty of opportunities out there. So we really want to help shift the needle in education and do things that are meaningful. And so even if it's just a discussion, you know, reach out to us. But thanks so much for your time, Josh. And I love, you know, great questions. And I, I love our discussion. That's great. Thanks, Chad. Have a good one. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow us on Twitter at WSCB Podcast or at Josh Rapoon. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>